the unmerited kindness of the Lord. You haven't earned it. You didn't beckon this. It came upon you. It enveloped you. This is God's grace to you. Stand in it. One commentator says, rightly, Peter perfectly balances the indicative and the imperative. The theological tension that we see here is found many other places in the New Testament. This is Timeless Truth Today, and I'm your host, Matt Williams. Welcome to part one of a two-part series with Pastor Paul Twist, Learning to Stand in the Grace of God. Pastor Paul's text for this series is the first epistle of the Apostle Peter, chapter 5, verses 12 through 14. Pastor Paul Twist is the new senior pastor at Bethany Bible Church. Also effective today, he joins this program as its new host. So welcome, Pastor Paul. You've certainly stepped into a pretty demanding situation. Thanks, Matt. It's my privilege to serve Bethany's congregation in this way and to extend the ministry of the pulpit on 98.3 FM. And demanding is an appropriate word to describe the situation. Uh, It's challenge enough just to fill the shoes of my friend Lance Quinn. But additionally, we're seeking to move out from Santa Clarita to the Conejo Valley. Uh, We have six children, ages 13 down through four. We homeschool, and I will be continuing in my role on faculty at the Master's Seminary. Thanks, Pastor Paul, for sharing. And once again, welcome. May God bless you, your family, and your ministry. As we get underway here with part one of Learning to Stand in the Grace of God. Please turn to the end of 1 Peter. We look at the last few verses, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 12 through 14. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 12 through 14. The text reads, Through Sylvanus, our faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and bearing witness that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace be to you all who are in Christ. This is God's word. May he bless it to our hearts this evening. The final greetings sermon sits in a category all of its own. And even the most experienced preacher fears it. He's well accustomed to the opening greetings sermon Many times as he started a new series and emphatically insisted that this is indeed the letter that was written to the church in Ephesus, Rome, Colossae. And then he drops into the bread and butter of his ministry, working through the epistle week by week, verse by verse, unpacking the message, the body of the letter. He feels very much at home there, and it may be that early on in his series, the sermons are perhaps more theological 
as the letter itself expounds the grounds upon which uh, the exhortations are given. And then as the series progresses, his sermons might become more didactic, more imperatival in nature, more practical, as the letter itself does. But the whole time, the final greetings sermon is on the horizon. It's approaching, and he can't escape it. Now, I have to be honest, I have often thought to myself, wouldn't it be fun to preach one of those final greetings? How naive I was. What do you do with Mark sends his greetings? Not to mention, greet one another with a kiss of love. More about that later. I often find myself giving the counsel, you need to come to evening church. It's for your good, you will benefit. And I never doubt that counsel, except maybe this week. The clock's ticking, they're going to be there, and you have got to find something to say about Mark and his greetings. Now, I don't want to misrepresent the text. Peter does give some greetings, but... He also gives a command. Nestled in the center of our passage, he says, stand firm in it. And he's referring there to what he just wrote, which is, this is the true grace of God. And it's there that I want to spend most of our time this evening. And as we think about it, just initially, we see there's actually something of a theological tension introduced by Peter in the closing remarks of this letter. He says, this is the grace of God. By its very definition, that is something that you have not earned. This is the unmerited kindness of the Lord. You haven't earned it. You didn't beckon this. It came upon you. It enveloped you. This is God's grace to you. Stand in it. One commentator says, rightly, Peter perfectly balances the indicative and the imperative. The theological tension that we see here is found many other places in the New Testament. It's not that far away from Jude's epistle when he says in the opening remarks, you are kept by God. He writes to the Christian and says, you are kept by God. And then in the closing remarks, Jude says, keep yourself in the love of God. Or perhaps more well-known, Paul writes to the Philippians and he says, work out your salvation. You do it. You work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Very next verse, because it is God who works in you to will and to work to his good pleasure. Or John simply uses the term abide. Over and over again, and abiding in John's gospel and his epistles is to be served, ministered to by the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then he commands us to abide. In the same way, Peter says, this is the grace of God, now stand in it. And our responsibility is to think through that apparent tension. What does it mean, and how do we do it? 
And what we find, as is so often the case in Scripture, is that this tension is by no means a burden to us. It is by no means a burden. In fact, as we unpack it, what we find is that this tension is life-giving. As we come to understand exactly what it is that Peter means when he says, this is the grace of God, now stand in it, we find a source of life. We find the means by which you and I might keep going in the face of all adversity. As Peter writes this epistle to his readers saying there is suffering on the horizon, he closes it and gives us the means by which we might keep pressing on. And so structurally, we might divide our thoughts this evening into two halves. The first, I've labeled simply learning the grace of God. And the second, standing in the grace of God. We are to learn the grace of God and then stand in the grace of God. And it's there that we find the means by which we might persevere in the face of all adversity. Beginning then with learning the grace of God, Peter says, Through Silvanus, our faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written to you briefly. It's important to note that Silvanus is not being labeled here as what we call an emanuensis. An emanuensis is a scribe, and it's very unlikely that Peter is saying here, Silvanus was my scribe. He wrote this letter down. By virtue of the particular preposition that Peter uses, through him, and by virtue of the fact that he commends Silvanus to his readers, more likely Silvanus was the carrier of the letter. Peter wrote it, and then Silvanus was the one that delivered it. I commend him to you. He's trustworthy. You can take this letter from him. Now, more about that later, but notice Peter then goes on to say, I've written to you briefly, exhorting and bearing witness that this is the true grace of God. The obvious question is, what is the this? What is the this to which Peter is referring? And the answer is the whole letter. It's not that Peter is saying this, referring back to one specific comment that he just made. Towards the end of his letter, as he wraps up all that he said, most likely what he's saying there is, This, all five chapters, my letter, this is the grace of God. And notice just how emphatic Peter is. He says, I have been exhorting you. I have been bearing witness. I have been insisting upon this one fact. I have been laboring over the course of these verses to tell you that this is not merely the grace of God, but the true grace of God. Peter is being very emphatic here as he communicates this simple truth. Why? Because if you think about it, think about what Peter has said over the course of this epistle, it does not present itself to us self-evidently, inherently, as being the grace of God. All that Peter has written to us does not come across intuitively as God's unmerited kindness. By way of review, Peter says in chapter 1, 
you are elect exiles. God's electing love sought you out. You were spiritually lifeless and he elected you. He chose you and you now find yourself as an exile, an alien, a stranger in this world. He then says you are an exile to the point where it is likely to bring about suffering. Your alien status is most likely to bring about suffering in the near future, hardship. And he says, that's okay. In fact, you are to gird up your loins. You are to set your mind ready for action. Peter doesn't give the Christian a day off. He doesn't say that suffering allows you to ease and to stand back and just to be passive in the Christian life, but rather get ready, Peter says, for action in light of the coming suffering. In chapter 2, he uses a different word picture. He says you are living stones being built into a glorious temple. And with that bigger picture in mind, you are to submit to all earthly authorities. To the degree that they are not asking you to sin, you are to submit to them. They may ask things of you that would not be your preference as a Christian, but you need to submit. And that's okay, says Peter, because you follow in the likeness of Christ. You follow in his sufferings. First Peter perhaps more than any other letter in the New Testament, sets forth Jesus Christ as our example. Now, of course, it's true. He is the substance of our faith. He is the object of our salvation. The second you place your faith in Christ, he then also begins to function as your example. You follow after him. You also take up your cross, and Peter labors this throughout his letter. In chapter 3, he then zeroes in on one particular relationship, that of a husband and a wife, and he says to the wife, you submit to your husband even if he is an unbeliever. You submit to your husband even if he is an unbeliever, and you understand that that example is just a microcosm of our relationship to the government. Not that we're married to them, but the point is the government aren't believing, they're not Christians, and he says you submit to them. And he says also, wives, submit to your husbands even if they are not in Christ. And in fact, you can be greatly encouraged, Peter says, because it may well be that God in his wisdom uses your obedience and your submission to win him. He then moves on to husbands and says, you need to treat your wife in an understanding way. In fact, we all need to be submissive, loving, gentle, humble with Christ as our example. Chapter 4, he keeps going with lots of imperatives, lots of instructions. We are to be full of love. We are to submit. We are to be gentle. We are, in summary, to be excellent. You see, the message of Peter is not so much that you will suffer. The message of First Peter is that your responsibility is to honor the Lord in the midst of suffering. We sometimes reduce First Peter down to a book simply communicating the, the fact of the Christian suffering, when actually what he's saying is, you will suffer and your responsibility is to honor the Lord in the midst of suffering. He commends us to strive towards excellence in our Christianity. Chapter 5, he talks about elders 
And he talks about the church, again telling us that we need to be excellent even if suffering were to come our way. Now, if I had asked you this evening as you walked in, can you tell me about the grace of God? Perhaps you would have said, well, the grace of God is, is his undeserved goodness, his undeserved kindness. And I would say, absolutely. Can you tell me where you have seen that grace? My guess is you might have pointed to the cross. You might point to your entry into the Christian life, your moment of salvation. When the Lord saved me, I experienced his grace, undeserved kindness. He washed my sins away. And I would say, absolutely. And you see, we do tend to be quite good at thinking about God's grace as it relates to our salvation. We don't tend to do so well thinking about God's grace as it relates to our sanctification. We don't tend to do so well thinking about manifestations of God's unmerited kindness in our pressing on in the Christian life. Remember, Peter is writing to Christians here. He's not writing primarily an evangelistic letter to unbelievers so as to to win them to the gospel. He's writing to Christians and he says, this is the grace of God to you, believers. As you press on towards Christ's likeness and towards glory, this is the grace of God. God elected you and he placed you on earth as an exile, as an alien. You don't feel at home here and that is God's unmerited kindness towards you. Our children are beginning to experience this firsthand now. Our older ones in particular, just as they get older, their lives are intersecting more with the world and they they see and they feel just how distinct the Christian life is. Our son was on a sports team last year and he would come home and we thank God for how he had honored our requests of him. You don't do this and you do do this. And, and he would tell me about what the other boys said and what he didn't say. He would tell me about what he did and what the other boys did not do. And there was times he would say, Dad, it's just really awkward. That's the Christian life. We don't belong here. And Peter says, this is God's undeserved kindness to you. Think about the suffering, the persistent theme of suffering through First Peter. Peter is saying, this is God's unmerited kindness to you. Who knows what Peter's readers experienced after the reception of this letter? Who knows the kind of persecution that they experienced firsthand? As he gave them a warning that it was indeed on the horizon, physical, emotional pain, torture, even death. And Peter wants them to be sure of their theology, that as the persecution comes, they would respond and say, this is God's kindness to me. Now you can see why it is that Peter needs to be so insistent. I have been stressing to you that this is God's undeserved kindness. This truly is the grace of God. Now, what is the particular hindrance 
that stops us from affirming that theological truth. I would say for Peter's readers, it would be the anticipation of Christ's return. When you read the New Testament and when you read the early church fathers, something that will strike you is just how eager they were to see Christ return. There was a very keen anticipation that any day now he'll come back. Something that we have lost in the church today. It's been just a few years since he left us and he promised he's coming back. So maybe today's the day. And Peter writes and says, well, actually, there's a period of suffering coming your way. You can imagine how that would really burst their bubble. You can imagine how that would be a real wake-up call for them. And it would be difficult to join with Peter and say, this is God's kindness to me. Now, for us, I think it's different. To our detriment, we have lost that anticipation of Christ's imminent return. Our problem is simply the rise of the individual, the rise of individualism. The 20th century was the century of individualism, and we sit in that stream. We all without even realizing it, expect the world to conform to us in a way that no other generation has before. We all expect things to fall down in front of us exactly according to our desires and our preferences. I think often about my pastor back home and his father, who was in his 90s some years ago, and my pastor said, my my dad at the age of 14 was told that his education is now finished. He won't be going to school anymore. And there was no sense of injustice. And he was told, tomorrow you'll actually be going down the coal mine. And you'll go down there and you'll work apart from any natural light for eight hours every day, six days a week. And he did that until his 70s when he retired. And there was no sense of injustice, no sense of discontent. This was just his lot. Now, I tell that story just to show how far we have come. The age of the individual is one that says Copernicus was wrong. In fact, I do sit at the center of the universe and everything should conform to my preferences. The age of the individual is one that prioritizes comfort above all other things so that each and every one of us is guilty of striving to create and to maintain our own personal utopia. You're listening to Timeless Truth Today. Pastor Paul ended today with an observation about, quote, the age of the individual. Some have said that America was founded by rugged individuals. Is being a follower of Jesus at odds with this tradition? Or is that image more often narcissistic and Hollywood-inspired? Many of our founders, often alone, were fighting and exploring for the public good. Quite often, they were also members of a courageous community of believers. Biblical Christianity commands us to be part of that community, too, at a church where Christ is alive in our hearts, His Word is taught, and conforms us to His image. 
Timeless Truth Today is a teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Twist and a listener-supported outreach of Bethany Bible Church in Thousand Oaks, California. We hope you'll visit our website at timelesstruthtoday.org. There you'll learn more about our purpose of spreading the good news of our crucified, risen, and coming again Savior, Jesus Christ. If you're in the area of Thousand Oaks, you're invited to join us for worship on Sundays at Bethany Bible Church with services at 10.30 a.m. and 6 p.m. The church is located at 200 West Bethany Court in Thousand Oaks. Hope you'll join us tomorrow with part two of Learning to Stand in the Grace of God with our new host and teacher, Pastor Paul Twist, as he teaches us directly from God's Word. I'm Matt Williams. Thank you for listening to Timeless Truth Today.